Welcome to Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's guest is Darren Fletcher, longtime Major League or former Major League All-Star. Darren Fletcher, really, really good chat. Uh, Fletcher was one of the guys that I got to chat with a little bit. Uh, there was an Expos event back in the spring, and uh, him and Kenny Hill and Ellis Valentine and Chris Spire and a bunch of guys um, recorded most of those on site, but this one I did uh, remotely and uh, waited on it, and it was well worth the wait. A really thoughtful guy, interesting guy. His grandfather played minor league ball. His dad had a Moonlight Graham moment. He got two innings in the big leagues, and his son, Casey, uh, was a standout player for the Illinois Fighting Illini and then went on to play indie ball, so pretty cool family history. Uh, and he is very thoughtful here. There's even discussion of mortality. He talks about his former teammate, Roy Halliday. Uh, Fletch, unfortunately, also lost his dad recently. So, uh, there's some real talk here. And, uh, he acquits himself beautifully. Really, really thoughtful guy. And some good thoughts on the game of baseball and life and all that. Thank you massively, by the way, to wonderful producer and fiance. Amy Kaufman, she's the best. She helped set up this podcast with Fletch. Uh, there's a few coming down the pike that Amy was responsible for. She's the producer, booker, fiance, soon to be wife extraordinaire. And I appreciate her work very, very much. This would not have happened without her. Also, let us discuss the first of this week's sponsors, and that is ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter, listen, you want to get uh, people with the right skills for the job that you want to fill? Well, ZipRecruiter is the way to go. They send your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With our powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans rather thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. That's right. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, listeners of the Jonah Carey podcast can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, which is ZipRecruiter.com slash Jonah. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Jonah. And one more time. Z-I-P-R-E-C-R-U-I-T-E-R dot com slash Jonah ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Thank you to ZipRecruiter for sponsoring the podcast. Speaking of the podcast and various other work for CBS Sports, let's discuss CBS Sports HQ. That is where you will find me doing most of my work these days. HQ is cool, 24-hour streaming service where you can catch news and analysis on every single sport. we got lots of World Cup stuff going on. That's actually been a lot of fun. I'm not a huge soccer fan, but, man, there's been some really good matches. It's really cool. Uh, and, of course, wall-to-wall baseball these days, so check me out there. You can do that on Apple TV, Roku, uh, pretty much any type of OTT device. And uh, also you can just do it at cbssports.com. Bottom of the page is HQ. And also get the best highlights and biggest sports stories right in your inbox every morning with the CBS Sports HQ newsletter. It's packed with all the good stuff you need to see before you start your day. Just go to cbssports.com slash HQ daily to subscribe. And hey, let's pay some more bills. We got a couple more sponsors this week. Let's discuss SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the best. They have been sponsoring the podcast since the Mesozoic era. They are fantastic. Uh, the best place to buy or sell tickets to anything you possibly want. I have used SeatGeek third 35 trillion times. You could look it up for baseball games and hockey games and concerts and all that. And uh, it's very much baseball season. We're entering that great mid-season stretch. You can go to anything that you could possibly imagine just by using SeatGeek. You'll find the best tickets. Maybe it's behind the plate or third base side or upper deck, whatever. 
the best bang for your buck will become obvious when you use SeatGeek, a really cool analytical and intuitive device and app for getting the best tickets. And if you download the SeatGeek app today and enter the promo code Jonah, J-O-N-H, but you should know that, you'll get $20 off of your SeatGeek purchase. That's right. Download the SeatGeek app, enter the promo code Jonah today, and you'll get $20 off of your first SeatGeek purchase. Thank you to SeatGeek for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, more housekeeping here. We got uh, sportsnet.ca. Uh, instead of Blue Jays this week, I'm writing about Mookie Betts. So if you are at all into Mookie Betts, which is great baseball players, be sure to check that out this Thursday and you'll see me on, Sport, on uh, Sportsnet TV as well from time to time. Uh, most likely this week talking about Mookie Betts as well. So tune in for all of that and we will do one more sponsor read because of course we will. We got Quip. Here's the thing about the way we brush our teeth, we suck at it. We're lazy. We don't do it for long enough. We forget to brush our teeth on time. We don't know what we're doing. We just kind of half-ass it. Well, listen, Quip can do it better than that. Quip is different than other brands of toothbrushes. First of all, it's a quality electric toothbrush. It's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. It's got a built-in timer, helps you clean for the dentist recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. Subscription plans are for your health, not just convenience. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist recommended schedule every three months for just five bucks, including free shipping worldwide. Backed by a network of more than 20,000 dentists and hygienists and hundreds of thousands of happy brushers who use Quip every day. And how about this? Quip starts at just 25 bucks. And if you go to getquip.com slash Jonah right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill refill pack free. Easy for me to say at getquip.com slash Jonah. That is G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash Jonah. Thank you to Quip for sponsoring the podcast. All the bills have been paid. All the thank yous have been made. Enjoy this podcast with Darren Fletcher. Right off the bat, I think a good place to start is to talk about this incredible baseball family that goes back generations. This is your grandfather who played minor league ball for so many years. Your dad was a terrific player, ended up with a Moonlight Graham moment, which we can get to. That's fascinating to me. Uh, you, of course, had your long uh, and successful career. And then Casey uh, ended up making a name for himself as a member of the Illini and playing Indie League as well. Uh, so maybe let's go back and, and talk about you as a kid and having your dad and grandfather have such heavy baseball ties, was it just a given that you were going to be a baseball player? Did they kind of push you into it? How did it come to be? Um, I don't think it was a given. I mean, it was a given that I guess the fact that I um, dreamed of it. I yeah. mean, you, you kind of want to you want to emulate your your you know the people that are in your life that are special to you. And obviously, I grew up you know, really close with my grandfather and, of course, my father. But my grandfather and I did a lot together when we were, when I was young. And he was a, a big mentor and someone that, um, 
you know, he was he was really kind of the you know he was the the, the country boy. Yeah. He was the country boy pitcher that um, that um, you know just graduated from high school and and made a minor league team, got signed by a professional contract by just a tryout. Hmm. You know, and then ended up working his way all the way up to AAA. Never appeared in the big leagues, but was uh, but was a AAA pitcher um, for. Five or six years played in the minor leagues as as much as ten, I believe. Mm-hmm. You know, um, back in the thirties and forties. Um, so you know, baseball was a big part of the big part of my family. But of course, you know, in the Midwest here in Illinois, you know, baseball is is the main sport that a lot of you know people talk about, and mm-hmm. it's kind of cardinal thing. So you know, baseball obviously was very big in my life. Um, you know, I, I um, you know, I, I, both of them were pitchers, actually, and I wanted to be a pitcher, but, I, hmm. you know, could hit a little bit. But, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it, it, and then my dad, obviously, which, you know, he, he passed away this spring. Yeah. Um, but he was, you know, you're right. You said it. He, he, he had really kind of this moonlight Graham kind of moment. You know, he pitched, he had one appearance in the big leagues and never to be, and when he was 19 and, and never had a chance to get back again, pitched, pitched I think, oh, another six years in the minor leagues, you know, kind of triple A, double A, but had that, um, you know, had that uh, field of dreams moment, never returned. So it was, you know, I think it was tough on him growing up. You know, he felt yeah. like he was the, you know, and my, my father was kind of the can't miss prospect that, that didn't have a long career. But, um, you know, I, I, I wanted to play too, I guess, and felt like I had a little bit of talent. But you know, it, it, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to do. Baseball is a, and even now, as you see, it's it's very competitive, very tough to make it. Yeah, to, just to underscore the point with your dad, Tom. Uh, one appearance in 1962 for the Tigers, two scoreless innings. So he's actually tied for the all-time major league record for lowest ERA in the big leagues, which is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and Illini pride, I know has to play a big role. I'm talking to you from Canada and I think that it's not quite the same thing. Alma mater pride here in general. I mean, people certainly respect the college that they went to, but you know, in a state like Illinois, it just resonates throughout the state. It's like you grew up, you know, you follow the basketball team, you follow the football team, you dream of playing in, in one of the sports. If you can, maybe multiple sports for the state school and then you end up there and uh and you do that you end up being extremely successful as a member of the Illini and obviously you have big league dreams and all that stuff but you get there you hit 497 in your senior year which is preposterous and and it's just a lot of success so aside from everything else can you articulate what it means to star at the state school, because again, I think it just, it's not always the case in other parts of the, of the states, maybe, and certainly in Canada to really realize what it is that that alone is such a big, big deal before we even get to getting drafted or getting to the big leagues to really excel uh, at the place of your youth has to be a cool thing. Yeah. And it's, uh, well, it, you know, it, it, it's something that, you know, a lot of, a lot of athletes, their, their athletic career ends at, in the state and yeah. ends at high school level. You know, you, you have a little bit of a, you could play a sport or two in the high school, but I, you know, I always dreamed of playing, you know, in college and competing athletically and, um, at, at a big university. And really the, 
the University of Illinois really was kind of a symbol of, uh, of hope, really, as a boy. You know, it, it offered me something because that's what I dreamed of is, is thinking, well, if I could ever sharpen myself up academically and athletically to be able to get a chance to compete at that level, and my father's alma mater and, and close to home within within a 20-minute drive, I'm, I felt like, you know, I made it. Yeah. You know, so it's, yeah, it was, I guess it's, you know, it's almost too, you know, apple pie and Americana, but it was for me when I was a kid is this whole, you know, it offered, it offered hope and it was a dream and it was a, and really it was going to be, I was hoping that it would become a pathway to future success in professional sports. Did you, I mean, obviously you were putting up numbers. You had to know that you were drawing some interest, but how does that work? You know, if you're sitting there and playing, can you look in the stands and identify the guy wearing the proverbial scouts fedora? Do you know when that's going on, when people are watching you? Do you have a yeah. heightened sense? Yeah. Yeah, you do have a heightened sense that, that, that people are watching. And I think that, yeah, I think that that's general. And any time that I took the field, even when I took the field on a playground, I felt like maybe someone was watching, not a professional sport or a professional scout, but just, but just like you, you play the game, you know, for the respect of the game, and also you play the game for the fact that you that you want to perform for somebody, whether it's your parents or girlfriend or perform um, against the other kids that you're playing against. You know, I always felt like I was playing, um, playing and performing for somebody, and you know, ultimately I wanted to play and perform for someone that would think that you're, you know, like all of us, baseball or any athlete, you know, yeah. that would give us a chance to, 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 to go on and try to perform at the highest level. Obviously it doesn't happen for a lot of, you know, almost everybody, but you know, but yeah, people, you know, like now, you know, scouts come see the kids play and, um, you know, a lot of kids get drafted and, and you know, they don't end up making it, you know, and even when you're in the minor leagues, you know, a ball all the way to AAA, you're always performing for somebody and a chance to go to the big leagues. And even at big league level, you're performing for under a watchful eye because there's always trades and free agency and, and the guy that's sitting on the bench wanting to take your job, you know. So there's always pressure. What do you remember about the day in 87 when the Dodgers drafted you? Do you remember where you were? Do you remember who you were with? How did that day go down? Yeah, I was with my dad. I was with my dad, my mom, and my future wife. You know, we, my girlfriend at that time, we were actually, believe it or not, funny story, I thought they were going to call me, and they ended up sending a telegram of all things. Oh, my God. What year is that? <laughs> yeah, like, it's, 19, it's 1987. I know. A telegram, like, it was 1943 or something. <laughs> you know, they sent a telegram and, and said that you had been picked. But wow. back then, back then, they really didn't have a, they didn't have any rules in place as far as, you know, the money goes, and they were still uh, back in even the 80s with the draft. They were concerned that, you know, there was whispers that they didn't even want to tell you what round you went in because oh, wow. they were worried about money all the time. So that telegram thing didn't even tell you the round that you were picked in, you know, <laughs> because they, they felt like, well, you were picked, and and maybe you just sign right away and not even ask. Obviously, the, the transparency is, is, is so much better now yes. than it was back, even as, you know, you know 30 years ago. I mean, listen, they didn't tell you. You should have just said, all right, I guess I was drafted 1-1. Let's go, 5 mil. I mean, that's the same yeah, bonus, right? Yeah, you know, when I got the telegram, that's what I was, you know, debating, but whatever. <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was a, you know, it's a big moment. And, you know, it, it's, again, another another chance. And, 
if you're as an athlete or anybody in a job situation, you know, every day to fight, in my opinion, to survive. You know, yeah. and never once, I was always hungry, I guess, as an athlete. And really, it's now at 50 years old that I finally can sit back and go, you know, you relax a little bit and say, wow, that was that was really fun. But when you're playing, you're when you're playing and competing, I, I rarely relax. I always felt like tomorrow could be my last day, you know, like they're going to get rid of me. So, you know, you really push and grind and fight your whole way throughout your career. And then you, then when it's all over, hopefully you can step back and say, wow, that was good. Or at least I tried my best. I may not have made it, but I, I gave it a good, a good shot, you know? So I, I, I was one of these guys that really, you know, people ask me, well, how cool was it? Is it to play in the big leagues? Yeah, it's cool. But you know what? Tonight I'm facing Greg Maddox, and I got to catch this guy's ball. You know what I'm saying? I'm always, I was always in the moment of the job, and I, you know, I never wanted to catch myself really appreciating doing, you know, what I was doing. I wanted to never let my guard down and just keep fighting. And from a player development standpoint, to end up in the Dodgers organization, that's pretty cool. That's, I mean, they've had so many moments of really nailing it on the developmental level. And that was right in there. The year at, next year, they draft Piazza and literally this is like 62nd round. Caros comes through that class. You just got all that, that next stretch of rookie of the year guys, right? Hollinsworth, that's the same era where you've got four or five yeah. of rookies of the year. So was there something to the Dodger way? Did you, I mean, obviously that's the only way you know, that's the only system you went through, but was it real hands-on instruction? Was there some sort of secret sauce involved to really make you a better ball player? Nah. Yeah, I think I think it was the, you know, I guess it's I'm not sure where they they stack up now as far as sure. their player development, but back then, back in the back in the 80s and 90s, they they were kind of the hit organization, especially producing some some like you said, a lot of rookie of the years coming out of their spots. So I, uh, without a doubt, I, I was drinking the the you know the blue Kool Aid, the <laughs> Dodger Blue stuff, and I wanted to be I wanted to play in L.A. I mean that's you know, I was drafted by them, and you know, I I, I was I was a bit heartbroken when I got traded. You know, I yeah. I, I felt like that that uh, that maybe I could you know play in L.A., but obviously you got Mike Sosha and Piazza's buying in, and you know, you just I just think that wasn't wasn't going to fit there. But uh, yeah, yeah, Raul Mondesi was a remember Raul oh, played yeah. in Toronto, and yeah, Raul was a was a rookie of the year. They had they had a lot of great players, and then the year that. You know, I was drafted in 87, the Dodgers won the World Series in 88. So it was the, it was the it franchise to be in, I felt like, in the, in the late 80s. And it was, it was, it was great to, to be a part of. I mean, you know, the Dodger town, I don't know if you've ever been to Dodger town. Of course, incredible place. Anymore, but, you know, yeah, it was an incredible place. The fans were walking around amongst the players as the players were walking to the, to, uh, to, uh, you know, the Dodger, the, the Vero Beach Stadium or the minor league complexes. And, you know, the interaction was great. And, and you would uh, you hang out with you know Sandy Koufax, uh, Roy Campanella would be hanging out, Maury Wills, you know all these great Dodger players from back in the storied years of you know Brooklyn Dodger and LA Dodger baseball are just hanging out there. It was it was really surreal to be honest with you and to be thrown into that just right off a of college campus. I mean, you, it's very easy to get you know seduced by that and want to yeah. be there. It's funny because, you know, I was, I have an idea what my next question is going to be. Not always, depends. 
but I, I had it teed up. I was going to ask you about the Koufax moment because all of us, whether we meet him or literally even catch a glimpse of him, there's something about this guy who, by the way, looks like he's 45 right now. He is the best looking man in the universe. That I'll just say that right off. But he, oh yeah. But there's something about the first brush with Koufax. Yes, of course, Wills and and. and incredible talent going through but do you remember the first time you shook hands with him do you was did he offer any advice did, did anything happen because it's just like it's this mythic experience to even be in and i'm not a you know a hero worship guy or anything like that but there's something about this he's just the most graceful man i've ever come across yeah i mean he has a he has a presence and aura about him that's yeah. indescribable i guess i guess one the the you know sandy koufax but the shape that he's in as, as he's aged and, and, um, and the smoothness of his voice yeah. and, and, uh, and uh, the uh, friendly and, and, um, you know, um, uh, accommodating and e- easy to approach guy yeah. that you ever want to meet. And he, I remember the day that I met him. He was out, I was playing in Vero Beach and A ball and he came to work with some of the pitchers while the A ball season was going on the Florida State League. And I met him, and I think he even called me by my first name. I mean, he went he went to the you know he went to the trouble of learning who the catcher was on the on the That's team great. at that time. And you know, I actually hit, took batting practice off of him. And the spring of '89, he was he was still able to throw batting practice. And I remember, you know, um, you know, hitting uh, hitting Sandy Koufax curveballs and fastballs oh. thrown to me. Obviously, he was just laying it in there yeah, I mean, yeah. in batting practice, but still. Being able to take batting practice off of him and, um, yeah, just, um, l- larger than life figure, really. Um, phenomenal. Um, I, I haven't seen him in a while, but you're right. It's, uh, it's a mystic experience for some reason when you meet him. It, it's, uh, truly a, truly kind of a god amongst men. Uh, just as an aside to the listeners, if you haven't read the Koufax biography by Jane Levy, it's one of my favorite books, baseball or otherwise, that I've read. It's really, really good. Jane is a phenomenal writer. Well worth it. Uh, I want to ask you about your big league debut, too. I love hearing those stories. Uh, I talk, I've talked to a bunch of your uh, ex-mates from the 94 Expos as well. We'll get to that. I talked to Kenny about his big league debut. I've talked to, I don't know, all those guys, Walker, all of them. And they all seem to have a different kind of experience. Uh, you know, in your case, it was really a cup of coffee that season. But still, you know, it's huge. So, uh, what went down? And, and even before that, how did you, uh, find out which minor league coach told you and what was your reaction? And was it a scramble to get to the ballpark? How did that day go? Uh, yeah, I mean, I remember Kevin Kennedy was the manager. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. Play Albuquerque. Kevin told me that, uh, that, uh, was, they were going to call me up for a September call up in 89 and, you know, um, had a good year in AAA in, in, in 89 at Albuquerque. Of course, they had won the World Series in 88, but they weren't playing as well in 89. Yeah. You know, they were middle of the pack, Western Conference Division team, maybe even towards the end a little bit, but, you know, had some great players still. Obviously, the, the World Series team was still intact. I yep. think, I think, uh, maybe Kirk Gibson may have been hurt most of that year in 89, but Hershiser had been still pitching well and Sosha and, you know, all those guys, but, uh, you know, I, I got called up September, didn't play for a week. Hmm. You know, even though the team was basically out of it, you know, we were playing some teams that were still competing to try to make the playoffs. And, and you know, the unwritten rule of, you know, not sloughing off and trying to win every game, even though it didn't mean much for the Dodgers. It meant something else for the other team. Right. And, 
you know, I, I did get an opportunity to get in a game in San Diego. I think the, I think we were beating San Diego, you know, handily late in the game, and I gotten it, you know, made my debut on in a big game in San Diego and got a got a you know first pitch fastball I got. I get a base hit to uh, to right field. Nice drive. Yeah, yeah. So it was uh, it was neat. It was really neat. Um, you know, get the ball, all that. San Diego on the West Coast is is a really cool place, you know. So can't really remember the picture that I hit it off of. But, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, the, the, that is a it's a neat memory. You know, I guess being called to the big league, what I noticed the most was it was L.A. I mean, it, it felt like Hollywood. It felt like the movies. You know, the, the lights are so great, and the, there was a lot of fans. And L.A. had been the like I said, the World Series champ before. You know, the year before, so it was. It was. Uh, it felt like something out of a movie for sure. You go to the Phillies, and it's funny because uh, one of the highlights of your career, I'm assuming, is also one of my favorite experiences as a fan ever. Uh, you were at Olympic Stadium in May of 1991, and you caught a guy named Tommy Green, who had a pretty good big league career, certainly. Uh, not necessarily a perennial all-star, but he threw a no-hitter that day. And I swear, and I had to look up the box score, I swear he walked 17 guys that day. It was. It was the... I say this with all respect to Tommy, throwing a no-hitter, making the big leagues is the best accomplishment ever, let alone throwing a no-hitter. But it felt like the bumpiest no-hitter of all time, that he was fighting it. He, I don't know what his pitch count was, but it must have been extremely high because he had a lot of strikeouts and a lot of walks. And the guy just worked. And I have to imagine that as the catcher that day, you're a young guy, you're trying to make your bones, you're catching this guy who's going forward, you want more than anything in the world for it to work. And it's just difficult because of the strikeouts and the walks and the pitch count and this, that. What do you remember about that day? It has to be so cool that it happened, but I would think that that kind of no-hitter where it's not a clean Kershaw kind of affair, it's really just kind of bouncing around, had to be nerve-wracking, exciting, something like that. Yeah, it was. You're, you're exactly right. It was uh, It was one of the one of the hardest no-hitters you'd have to work for just to be able to even win the game. Yeah. I mean, there was, there was, there was a doubt that he would even – Win the game. I mean, you know, who who knows about giving up the hit? It was a matter of whether he was even going to survive the fifth inning. Yeah, <laughs> you know, because he did. You're right. He he walked, I think, seven or eight batters, and I think he walked most of those in the first five innings. I don't think anyone made it to third base, but there were several occasions where there was there was a guy on second base during the uh, mm-hmm. during the uh, early part of the game, and the score was it was a low scoring game. I think. The Phillies may have had one run or no run, so it was it was definitely one of those ones where, as a catcher and pitcher, you look up in the seventh inning and you go, "You mean he hasn't given up a hit yet?" You know? <laughs> like it, it's been been this has been a tough game, but you know there's uh, the Expos haven't gotten a hit yet, so I would say the fifth or I don't know I'd say the sixth or seventh inning is when I realized he's got a chance here. I think we took a lead, maybe three or four to nothing, so and he was. You know, he had some good stuff, so you knew that there was a chance. But the Expos at that time, had, you know, they weren't winning games, but they had some, no. they had some pretty big names in the lineup. They yeah. had Andres Calarraga, they had Larry Walker, they had, they had uh, Tim Wallach, you know, the Foley, they had Spike Owen. Those were some guys that they could, they could hit, you know, and it was, you know, I think the last, I think the last, I believe the last three outs of that game were like Walker, Cat, and and Eli Wallach. Oh wow! I believe. Yeah, I believe that's the last three outs. I think he got Tim Wallach and shot back to him, but he got I think maybe struck out Walker and and got Galarraga to pop up. 
and then uh, a ground out. So, you know, tough, tough team, you know. I mean, Galarraga and Walker ended up going to uh, Colorado. and uh, I mean, they were a tough Monsters, bunch, yeah. You know, so, um, yeah, it was it was a cool moment. It was a Sunday, it was a Sunday afternoon game, and, you know, the Phillies, the Phillies had a, you know, we had already maybe won the first two or one and one, but, you know, the Phillies, I don't know whether they'd been out drinking all night the night before or what, but they, <laughs> the Fergosi ended up putting in what he called the B team, and I was on the B, you know, it was the, it was the guys that didn't start all that often, and it was really the, the B team that was in there. You had guys, you know, I don't even think John Cruck played that game, or Dykes or any of them, you know, some yeah. of those guys that were, you think of the Phillies in the 90s, I don't think that they were even in the lineup with that on that day. Just kind of gave him a day off on Sunday. And, um, yeah, Tommy goes in there. There's no way that I can believe that Lenny Dykes for John Cruck and Darren Dalton on a Saturday night in Montreal on a beautiful spring, a spring evening would have gone drinking. You cannot convince me of that, Darren. It's impossible. There's no way. I don't believe it. Yeah, I know. They, yeah, they were, they were playing euchre in their rooms, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, they were definitely, they, they were on their way to church in the morning for sure. Um, I, it's an interesting thing because, uh, you get dealt again that off season and you mentioned Kevin Kennedy. And Kevin Kennedy ended up working in the Expos organization, but before he even did that, it was in in retrospect we can go back. He was like an Expos spy for the Dodgers because those really good Expos teams, a lot of those guys ended up playing under Kennedy. And you know, Duquette would just say to him, "Hey, who you got?" He'd say, "Oh, you should go after this kid Wetland. Wow, he's electric." And it'd be, who you got? Oh, you know what? This kid's, uh, Fletcher, he's stuck behind Dalton and Philly. They're not going to play him. He's really good. He could be a 10-year big league veteran. Who you got? Oh, this 146-pound string bean named Pedro. Lasorda doesn't like him, even though he's awesome. You should go get him, too. And, like, that whole run, half the roster felt like these were all Kevin Kennedy plants. It was great. And after the 91 season, that's what ends up happening to you. You get traded, and it's not directly from the Dodgers, but it's from Philly to Montreal. And I talked to Duke, and he said, oh, yeah, like, we love Fletcher. And a lot of that came off of Kennedy's word. And it seemed like a lot of those guys just went through that pipeline of, Dodger Blue ending up on those really, really good 92, 93, 94 Expos clubs. Yeah, it was Kevin Kennedy. Yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah. Kevin, it was Kevin Kennedy. Kevin, Kevin had, you know, his, he, he knew exactly what the Dodgers had in their system and, and he knew that it was tough. You know, it, you know, the Dodgers, albeit they produced, you know, those, those, um, you know, uh, National League Rookie of the Year. Yeah. It was very tough. To consistently crack their lineup, mm-hmm. Tommy. That organization produced a lot of great players, but with the minor leaguers, it was tough to push the those headline big league guys out of their position. So, yeah. bottom line, Kevin Kevin knew that a lot of these kids, guys were going to be stuck. So, um, you know, and and he knew that he knew that obviously we had I played with John Wetland in the minor league, and Wetland, you know, even Tim Scott. Do you remember Tim Scott pitched great pitcher, in the, yeah. Uh, yeah, he pitched in the bullpen in the Expos in the 90s, and Tim Scott chewed up a lot of nice innings over his career in, mm-hmm. in, um, in Montreal, and he was a Dodger guy that Kevin brought over. So there's, there's, there's four right there, and so his, his influence on, uh, on the roster there was, was pretty big. So I've talked to a bunch of guys about the 97, I'm sorry, 94 Expos, 97, and, uh, everybody has a different answer, but my favorite by far is Cliff Floyd, and Cliff Floyd, God bless this guy. He's the most confident individual I've ever met in my life. He uh, immensely, and, and with good reason, a great athlete, first-round pick. And uh, he would say that for that team, when they came to the ballpark, 
And you were like maybe 26, 7, whatever, but by comparison, almost a senior citizen because there were so many young players on that team who felt like they could beat anybody. That It didn't matter. You're facing Maddox. We're going to crush this guy. You're facing these guys. We're going to crush everybody. And we're going to get to your the All-Star game in a second because that was a big moment for you and the team as well. But just in terms of going to the ballpark that year, this team is so good, so young, so confident, and you have now established yourself. You're now a big league catcher and good standing. You're an everyday player. And you're on this team that has real aspirations. So, so good. When you woke up in the morning, acknowledging that you were not a rest on your laurels guy, what did it feel like to show up at the ballpark that year? Um, well, it, it, I guess it, you, you had a lot of trust. I mean, when I showed up, I felt, I felt like we were going to win, but I had a lot of trust in my teammates. Yeah. I, I felt like we were, you know, I trusted them. I knew that we had a good team. You, you felt like it didn't have to be you today, Yeah. really. I wanted it to be me, but it didn't have to be me today. I didn't have to be the hero because there were, there were all-stars throughout this whole lineup. And, and, you know, it was one of those teams where it's like, wow, um, we're all pretty young and everyone's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is, this is kind of the future of baseball would be, you know, it, you know, obviously if we could stay together, you could build something great, but you know, they, it was, um, it was a, um, a team that when you, when you took the field, it, it seemed like, um, we were up four or five to nothing by the fourth inning mm. every night, every night. And it was just, it was, it was scary. We were, I thought we were scary good there. When we were on a row, we were really scary good. Um, and, you know, some you know, maybe the other teams around the league would say, well, we knew the strike was coming, and, and they were laying down a little bit. I mean, yeah. but we weren't. I mean, we felt we felt like every night it was, um, you know, it was, every night was kind of a boat race. We had, we had, we had an excellent team. It was just full of all-stars, really. Just crazy. Well, it's funny. Even the supporting cast, like that bullpen, had – what five future closers? I was if the game got to sixth inning and that team was winning, it's over. There's no you're not coming back against Scott and Shaw and Rojas and Wetland. Felipe was a master. He'd use whoever at the exact right time. It always worked. Uh, it, it was really, really something, and, and it did culminate to some extent in the All Star game. Um, five of you guys go, and you're there. That was your one and only All Star appearance. Mo too. Moises Alou hits a game winning double in the tenth inning. That was really cool as well. And we're about to come up on All-Star. You know, I'm talking to you on, uh, what, the Monday. So this will come out a few days before All-Star. Before, Yeah, before All-Star. But we're in that point of the year. And they showed a video of Wilson Contreras, the young Cubs catcher, and his reaction to finding out that he made the All-Star game for the first time. It's a big freaking deal, man. It's a big deal to be alongside those guys. And, you know, in your case, in Contreras' case, it might be being on the same All-Star game as Mike Trout or whoever. For you, it's... Maddox and Bonds and Glavin, and not to mention your own teammates. What did that feel like when you found out that you were going to be an all-star? Well, it was, it was, it was the best moment of my career. I mean, yeah. I felt like, you know, one day against the big league, but be, be selected as an all-star was, uh, was euphoric, really. I mean, it, and it was, you know, not to, not to, but, you know, there was a bit of a renaissance period going on in the, in the 90s anyway. Mm. I mean, there, there was, there was, there's Hall of Famers, you know, Take out whatever you want to do about steroids, whatever. But yeah. the names of the big league players that were playing on these rosters in the nineties were incredible. It was a renaissance. The the years that people were having. I mean, every every lineup had two or three guys that you felt like are going to be in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just it, it's a tough deal to crack. You know, especially even catching. I mean, it was. You know, I was the Piazza. I was the, I was the 
you know, behind Mike Piazza. But, yeah. you know, you had Javi Lopez. You had, I mean, you had so many great mm-hmm. catchers that were playing in the 90s that could throw and hit and run that uh, that put up, you know, just hugely gross numbers yeah, offensively. That me making the cut was just crazy, you know. It was tough for me to make the cut. You know, that was earlier in my career. I mean, I had some pretty good first halves um, in – in uh, Montreal and even in Toronto in, in 99 and 2000 where, you know, quite honestly, I could have easily been an all-star um, a couple more times, but it's just tough to compete against all the Hall of Famers yeah. that, 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 that you had to go up against and, uh, and match them number for number, you know. So um, it was it was a really neat thing and a really a lot of big names. Um, you know, Moises, I would have had an about that game. I was, I was due up third in the bottom of the tenth, but – Tony Gwynn gets the base hit yeah. up the middle, and, and Mo Alou rifled a double off the wall, and they sent him all the way from third to home. And my claim to fame is, is I, you know, told Tony Gwynn to get down as he, <laughs> as he slid in, as he slid in safe into Bud Rodriguez, you know, Bud Rodriguez's um, uh, shin guards. And, uh, you know, I caught a couple innings. You know, yeah. I caught, I think, the, you know, bottom of the eighth and the bottom of the top of the eighth and the top of the ninth, but I was due up to hit in the bottom of the tenth. So, yeah, it was, it was cool. It was really, I mean, to get back to the expo thing, I mean, I mean, we were the we were the best record in baseball yeah. in '94. I, I think that was the really the the pinnacle, the top of the expo organization at that time in '94 because you know all of the peers, everyone is gathering, all the baseball world is gathering at the All Star Game, and it's the expos that everyone's talking about, hmm. and it's the expo All Stars. There was what, five or six of us on the All Star team, which is you know it was it was. Um, you know, it hadn't happened before, you know. So it was it was a really neat moment. In that 94 season, I always thought it's bittersweet, you know. That, that was the sweetest moment of my career, being with those guys playing at the All-Star Game in 94. And then one of the most, you know, one of the most disappointing moments was, was less than a month later, you know, when they said that's it on the season. Yeah. What, so, you, yeah, it was a strange, strange year. I mean, it was. It was the ups and downs. It, it um, you almost feel like the organization... Montreal is a little bit snake bit from being the, it's, you know, everyone's talking about Canada and Montreal, the, the, you know, Toronto had won World Series in 92 and 93. Mm-hmm. Now the best team in baseball is another Canadian team, 94, and everyone's talking about the Expos, and then the plug is pulled, and, you know, they, they just really, the Expos, um, and, you know, just never really recovered after that point. Did it feel inevitable, the labor stoppage? I mean, obviously what the owners were trying to pull is crazy. They're like, well, the Expos can't compete with the Yankees, and the Yankees sure as heck aren't going to share money with the Expos, so we better take it off of the play, out of the players' pockets. Obviously, that's an untenable position. Anybody in their right mind has to strike. You can't do anything about that. It was completely unreasonable. But did you, even if it was from a distance, feel like, okay, we could be back on the field? Did you hold that hope? Was it like, all right, maybe this will happen? Or when the season... Yeah, you, you, yeah. you held on to the hope. You held on to the hope because you were having a good year, I think. It would have been easier to say, Alex, just pull the plug on it if you're... You know, you're sitting at, at, at 45 and 65 in the, in the yeah. you know, wins. You know, but we, you were holding on to hope because you had a good season. You know, so we did hold on to hope, but I guess that was always kind of dampered down by what you were hearing, you know, in the in the in the hallways and in the clubhouses of other players too, where they felt like, and even in the union meetings, you felt like this the dark cloud that were hanging over the season. We're, we're not just going to blow over. It was going to be a big storm was on the big storm was coming and, and it was going to be a tough one to, uh, 
a tough one just to be able to have a quick fix on. A few more. I want to ask you, a little lighter here, but I want to ask you about uh, a moment in the 1997 season. And, uh, again, I say this with all respect, you had a wonderful big league career. Not necessarily. So one, of my, one of my favorite years, though. I mean, when I look back, yes. the 1997 Expos. Go ahead. I had more fun on that team. Why was that? It was one of my most favorite years was 1997 in Montreal. We had a pretty good team, but it was just so much fun. I, I loved all those guys that I played with. It was it was a, just a fun year. Gosh, I love. I know that. I think we were pretty good going in the All Star break. I mean, I think we might have been even a chance to maybe make the playoffs. That was ninety seven. If it if it wasn't for a few things here or there, and also if they had the new playoff kind of thing that's going on now. But we had a darn good year. You did in ninety seven, and it was just a bunch of young kids. Well, that was the year Pedro won the Cy Young, too. 305 strikeouts, pretty good. That was, speaking of Kofaxian, people did not strike out 300 guys by then. So that was all very good. The moment I want to bring up, though, uh, and you'll forgive me for being tongue-in-cheek, but again, you had a great, great career. You played 1,245 games. Only two times in your big league career, however, did you steal a base. And that was the first time that you ever stole a base was in the 97 season. And, and again, I say this with, you know, all leather. Oh, yeah, that's one, one of my highlights, you know. Tell me about it. Tell, who did you steal I still off get about it. Now, what's that? Who did you steal off of? Do you remember? Yeah, it was uh, Brad Osmus. <laughs> oh, he was a good defensive catcher, too. <laughs> yeah, there was no throw either. <laughs> there, was, there was no throw. It was a 3-1 count, and Jerry Manuel was the third base coach, and Felipe gave me the Amazing. you know go sign. It was 3-1, and F.P. Santangelo was up to the plate. Yes. And the pitch was delivered, and I'd go, and it looked like an obvious ball four, which – would have meant that yeah. FD would have taken his base and I would have been forced to second base. But the umpire called it a strike. And it was such a kind of a poor call that it froze <laughs> um, Brad Osmus, and I slide in safe, and they give me a solo base. I love it. That's so, yeah, yeah, I got a, you know, I got a standing O that night, too. <laughs> of course they you did. They did. They, they, they gave me a standing O, and um, – Craig Bezio was against the Houston, and Craig Bezio was the second baseman, and he said, hey, Fletch, why don't you rip the bag out and hold it above your head like Ricky Henderson. <laughs> Those I didn't. I didn't. I, I couldn't go that far, but I did I did kind of like, you know, tip my cap or do something in kind of a fun jest for the thing. But everyone realized that it was, it was you know, it was like they were seeing Haley's comment, you know. Well, and I want to ask you about the Expos fans, too, because I feel like, especially toward the end, you know, they got a bad rap. The team came apart, bad ownership. People stopped showing up. And I always likened it to a restaurant, that if you go to a restaurant, it's your favorite restaurant, you love the steak, you love the salad, you love the soup, and then there's a cockroach in your soup, and you're like, nah, okay, it was a one-time thing. And then over and over, there's cockroaches, you're going to stop going, and that's what it was. But in the heyday, you know, in the mid-'90s, or even even in that 97 season, which was past the 94 prime, but fun fans, knowledgeable fans, giving a standing over for a stolen base, what did you make of those folks? It's a, it has to be a different experience, I would think, than all respect to other cities, but then playing in Cleveland or Milwaukee or whatever. Different kind of uh, culture and environment. Yeah, well, I, but I mean, you, you felt a closeness to the fans that were there. I mean, mm. it, there, there wasn't as, you know, sometimes there wasn't as many, but, yeah. you know, they, um, I, I, I've always felt like a special kingship to it's, it's Canadian fans and especially Montreal fans. Yeah. I guess. Because they know that they're a select group and there's things that have gone on up in that city 
that not maybe not too many people in the world of baseball it has happened, but it's a, it's their own little special moment that they can share amongst themselves, and it really went unnoticed to national U.S. media. You know, like I saw on base by me, or yeah. you know, they talk about the '94 team, or they talk about this and that. You know, sometimes that just kind of gets swept under the rug here in the U.S. But but in Canada, it's a big deal, and it's something that they also hold close to their heart. And that's why I always like going up there and talking to people that um, you know that are Expo fans. And 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 another thing is that time has stopped for the Expo fans. I mean, yeah. it stopped. They they can only reflect on those times when they have the team. There's nothing. There's there's there there's no present day for them and or looking towards for a future. So those memories that they had, you know, of the team, um, are still pretty fresh because they haven't had to be able to have any new memories made. So, um, you know, it's a it's a it's a different little deal. And and um, I was up in Montreal, you know, this this past winter and yep. um, had a great time. Love the city. That's great. Um, I want to ask you a couple more. I want to ask you about labor in general. We talked about the 94 strike. It's interesting. The, the game is thriving. People are making money. That's all fine. But the ratio of revenue from owners to players is flipped. It was the players had about 58% at one point, about 02. And now it's close to 60 for the owners. And, yeah, sure. I mean, the minimum salary is five, 600000 And obviously there are guys making $30 million a year. That's all fine. But everybody's making money. It's not like the owners are, are going hungry and, and players, you know, should obviously be lobbying for rights. But by the same token, you talk about the storm clouds. I mean, there are flat out rumblings of a labor stoppage. The CBA is not up this year, but it feels like people are bracing for battle. So acknowledging that you have to fight for your rights, whether you make, you know, 10 bucks an hour or you make 30 million a year, would you have any advice or would you have any kind of thoughts to ruminate on if you were talking to a 25 year old who was you know, playing for the Milwaukee Brewers now and might be heading toward a, a strike or a lockout as to how it might go or what to be prepared for? Because it's, it's scary stuff. We all want to see baseball thrive. It makes us nervous when there's a threat. Yeah, and, you know, I, I would take all threats serious, too. I mean, yeah. you, know, it, 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 you know, it doesn't seem like a lot. But, yet, I don't know. I, I think there's one thing that has happened back in 94, and a lot of baseball fans, our generation, are – Baseball fans in general that are that when they look back and they saw that long work stoppage, I think what it is it's a symbol and it creates a it creates a, uh, a history and a moment in time and the history of the game where I think everyone doesn't want to return to that. Yeah, and I think that's one thing that has happened with the '94 season and all the special things that were going on and that there was not a World Series. I think I think you're going to see. And I'm hoping my future or in the future of baseball is that they'll use that as a spot where they'll say, let's never return to that. And I think the owners and players don't want to return to that because there was such hard feelings um, amongst the two groups. The players and the owners just weren't getting along at all. There's a lot of animosity. And then the fans turned on everybody, and it was hard to get anyone back to the – anyone to trust us again and to, and to look at us as – as you know, the you know the the innocent little boys of summer to go out there and play ball um, for the fans. They looked at it as the players and the owners are, are greedy millionaires, and um, I don't want to ever see that return to that moment. I think they've learned their lesson. I mean, I think I think both sides will have a little bit more, um, you know, a, a little bit more tolerance for yeah. each other's side and have a have, have a way of trying to get together a little quicker. 
You know, not be so stubborn. Yeah. You know, and not try to take advantage of somebody. There's plenty of money in that game to go around. For sure. Um, this but there are some problems in baseball. I mean, I think that's yeah. something to be addressed. I think, I think there's some issues in baseball just in in today's game that that uh, may need to be addressed. It may not involve some sort of work stoppage or revenue, but there's there's some issues that I think that they need to, you know, that they need to the to 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 address. You know, and I think that that the attendance is a little bit down right now. Yes. And I think that a lot of people now are the younger kids. Um, are paying attention to other sports a little bit more, you know, and and um, you know, baseball. Baseball has to be careful of of not being not being um, um, aware of what the the common fan is um, complaining about, and they need to always think about trying to make adjustments to put a good product out on the field. No doubt about it. Um... This has been a, a tough year for, you, year for you personally. I want to ask you first about um, your old friend Roy Halladay, uh, lost way, way, way too early. And uh, you played with Roy for four years and developed a friendship and a kinship with him. Forget about the on the field, but off the field and getting to know his family and so forth. Um, what kind of guy was he? It really feels like people have come forward and, and told fascinating stories about not only the all-world pitcher and certainly future Hall of Famer, but about the really uh, smart, interesting, kind man that he was. Yeah, he was. I mean, I, my my interaction with Roy was really early in his career and yeah. kind of early in his story. So I knew I knew the young Roy Holiday, the minor leaguer that was trying to come up to the big leagues, and then, and then the young big leaguer that was trying to find his way and figure out where he fit and whether he would be able to, um, you know, be a, um, a factor and have a, have a strong big league career. So, you know, and then of course when I was doing some games for Roger Sportsnet, um, I was able to interact with him, you know, from a, from, um, you know, from uh, being a, a, an analyst, yeah. you know, and, and watching him perform at the highest level where he, he had gotten through his trials and tribulations and then became that player that he always wanted to become. And so it, it, it was an interesting you know, progression to be able to watch him. And I mean, I knew him as, as, as the young kid from Colorado that looked like the, you know, he looked like, um, you know, Uber, Uber player, six, six, big, yeah. strong, can't miss prospect, but struggled a little bit. Sure. You know, he pitched pretty well, but then struggled. And, and, you know, all the things that you have to deal with to try to figure yourself out and reinvent yourself. And he was able to reinvent himself and then he came back stronger, better and performed it you know, a Hall of Fame type caliber um, type of person. He was a workman, you know, he had a workman type personality. He was, he was, um, he was a, you know, he, he kind of guy watched and listened and, and tried to figure out, you know, um, you know, what kind of guy he was, what, what kind of big leaguer he wanted to be. There was a lot of different people that were influential in his career. I think Chris Carpenter was a big yeah. one, you know, um, Roger Clemens. There was all sorts of people that helped mold him because he was such a young player when he first signed. You know, seventeen, eighteen year old kid. They're trying to find themselves. So, you know, but I, you know, he was, you know, he, he came across in his later years as stoic and a bit standoffish sometimes with media. But he was just, he he was um, he was a hard worker and no nonsense. And he he didn't want any distractions. He wanted to just 
perform and perform at the best of his ability. He wasn't. He, um, I mean, my favorite thing is, is that I thought he had a pretty good sense of humor. My <laughs> my deal was is that you know once yeah you know, I knew him as a younger player and we could you know we could you know grab ass a little bit and have a lot of fun and you know when he was the when he was the Hall of Fame type pitcher in Toronto in the mid two thousands. I would come back and do a few games on TV, and I could still make him laugh, you know, because I remember a couple of clubhouse guys coming in and say, hey, man, Fletch, I really, you know, they Doc really likes it when you show up because he kind of, it reminds him of a of, of a different time, you know, when he was younger. And, you know, so, sometimes things when you're older and you're playing, you know, there's a lot of pressure and a lot of things to, to you know, to keep you from, you know, <laughs> not having, you know, a smile on your face. You know, you're always pushing and, so I was always able to make him smile and make him laugh, I guess, on a few things. But, you know, he uh, I just loved his way, really. Doc, he just loved his way because he was um, cause he, he was someone that um, really took it serious, took, took, um, took what he needed to do, and, and, he, and he took it seriously, and he knew that it was important for him to, to play his best and, and, and um, deliver a good product out there. And then closer to home, I want to ask you about the passing of uh, your father, Tom, in May. And I, I want to ask it um, from a couple perspectives. I mean, obviously, losing a loved one that close has got to be tough. But, you know, we all go through loss at one point or another. And, and sometimes when I do this podcast, like, I'll talk ball or whatever. But I'm always looking for kind of takeaways. You know, the rest of us have our struggles and we lose a friend or we lose a family member or whatever. And, uh, you know, it, it's fresh. I don't, I don't want to dig too hard or put you on the spot or anything like that. But, you know, how does one cope? Acknowledging that it's different for everybody, but do you sit there and say, okay, you think about the best memories of him? Do you think about the legacy that he left behind? I mean, it's just how does one go on and and put a positive spin on life when, you know, it is a, a major step, no matter what age, no matter what condition the person that you lost was in, is, is it's crushing, it's devastating, it's difficult. Yeah, I mean, you know, around here, the mojo has really changed. I mean, he was a big factor in all of our lives, you know, on, on, in my life, you know, and all of ours that are, that are here personally. I mean, he was, he left a big, you know, a big footprint everywhere. I mean, we live right near each other too, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an important question, and I think that, yeah, I guess maybe you go through stages where, you know, the realization you lost someone and you're a bit denial and how you just really want to run from it. Like, well, maybe I don't want to be here anymore. Maybe we should, you know, you know, load up the wagon and head out and try yeah. something different. And then, then I'm at to the point now where it's, you know, my mother's still around and, and you, you have a lot of things that, rem, you know, that give you a reminder of him. And, and, and I think that gives me comfort in the fact that I can look at things that, that are around my, my home site and things in my house and, and where he lives, that it's a constant reminder of him. And I, I find comfort in that. Maybe some people, like, I guess my first reaction when someone passes is that you 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 want to cover the hurt that you're feeling and you'd rather just run from it, you know. But yeah. but as time goes on, you, you, really, um, you really remember and you want to, you know, you want to, you want to honor him too, and and anyone that you you know that that you've lost, you want to honor him by you know keep on living. You know, I think it. You know, I, I, I'm stealing this from a stealing this from a movie that I just saw, and I don't know what movie it was, but but death gives life meaning. Hmm. You know, 
I heard it someplace. I don't know what it was a movie or something I read, but death gives life meaning, and and it gives us it, it, it it's it's going to be all of us are going to deal with it. You know what I'm saying? We, it, Father Time, it, Father Time is going to get us all, but it gives us meaning. The fact that you should live every day with some sort of meaning and some sort of purpose, and not just drift through life and and um, and uh, rat's asset. You should <laughs> you should uh, you should go after it. And, and a lot of the men that I played with and against, you know, they they knew this concept too, and they knew that that baseball gave their lives meaning, and they were going to not just take it as some sort of joke and, and 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 blow off the time that you've been given in some sort of casual, meaningless way. You know, they, they you go after something you believe in and you try to give it, you know, you try to give your whole life for it. And I've seen a lot of men give their whole lives for baseball. You know, their, their whole being was baseball, and that's what they meant. There's a lot of lifers now that have, that have played, managed, coached, still a part of it, special assistants, their whole life is the game, and baseball gives them meaning. So, you know, you got to find, find what the, what's there for you. So, you know, that's how you get back to Roy Holiday. I think baseball gave him, you know, it, it, it's something that he knew that he needed to, that he was given a gift and he wanted to squeeze out as much as he could out of it, you know. Anyway, you know, my dad, you know, passes away, but he, he was a baseball guy. You know, he loved, he loved baseball. He gave, gave him meaning. He gave something me and my dad to talk about. You know, a lot of times you, you know, baseball's a way of communicating with people that you yeah. that you know. A lot of times, Dad and I, you don't talk about, well, you know, how you feeling today. You know, uh, um, what's going on with you and mom? It's more of like, hey, did you see the uh, Blue Jays play last night? Or hey, did you see that uh, play at the plate? You know, it, it, it um, you know, it's, it's what's neat about the game. Uh, I like that very much, uh, Fletch. I appreciate your candor uh, and your stories and all that good stuff. Thank you for coming on the show, and uh, all the best to you and your family. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.